Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm flying on my own today, but because I haven't got much else going on in my life, I spend a lot of time staring into the internet and looking at statistics, and we decided to reward our listeners with something you clearly enjoy. So we brought back Nicholas Morton, who has done his last few podcasts. If you haven't heard them, you really need to. They're really good. He specialises in the history of the Crusades, interfaith relations during this period, and the Mongol Empire. Previous books include The Field of Blood, medieval military orders and the excellent mongol storm here to chat to us more on mongols so nick welcome back thank you very much great to be back on the show so we've talked a lot about the mongolians and the effect in the crusades and stuff hopefully by now and as i said in the intro people have heard of mongols and the mongol empire and genghis khan and from your previous podcast and again if you haven't guys once you've listened to this one go and look them up they're really worth it but this empire has managed to penetrate into the middle east how big was the mongol empire and how far did its influence spread sure in the mongol empire is vast and it encompasses much of asia so by the mid 13th century the mongols um, controlled territory in the west as far as the borders of hungary and poland and then sweeping right the way across the center of eurasia all the way across to the Pacific coastline, where towards the end of the 13th century, the Mongols completed the conquest of China. They tried twice to go a bit further and to invade Japan, but failed on both occasions. Mm. And so turning southwards, the Mongols made a series of invasions into sort of Persia and the Near East, which for the most part were militarily very successful. And by 1260, they had all the territory up to Damascus in Syria. But then following a defeat at the hands of the Mamluk Empire, which is the empire based in Egypt, they were forced back to the line of the river Euphrates. And there they were held for decades. But uh, Euphrates in the south, Hungarian borders in the west, Pacific coast in the east, this is a very, very large empire indeed. Yeah, I know it's been proved not to be entirely true, but... Didn't the Austrian flag comes from them turning the uh, Mongols away? Prince went out wearing a white uniform with this belt and the battle was so brutal that um, he ended up covered in so much blood when he took his, his belt off. It was red, white and red. I hadn't oh. actually heard that, but uh, you may well be right. But I have a fe- horrible feeling I've said that now. It might have been a <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, moving on. Foreign <laughs> Yeah. 
<laughs> so being British, we know from our imperialism that we export things as well, which is why the rest of the world are better at cricket and football than us. But how did the conquered uh, communities come to term with the fact that they were now under Mongol rule? Yeah, so this is a complex question because although the Mongol invasions were devastating, with an enormous loss of life in many areas, particularly areas where resistance was shown to the advent of a Mongol army. I mean, in, in one area, for example, where a relative of Chinggis Khan was killed whilst besieging a city, um, the decision was taken after the death of that individual that the entire area should be effectively sterilized of all life, not just human life, down to the last burden animal. Um, in many other reason, regions, it wasn't anything like that much. And so, yes, those communities that survived then have to deal with the fact that they are now living within the borders of the most powerful empire of their age. And for many, the Mongols, they just they just seem to be absolutely invincible and there's just no chop, no prospect of resisting them. And so it is worth thinking, what's that look like if you're on the receiving end of that, if you have to live? In those circumstances, particularly if you haven't, if that's new to you, if you weren't born into that environment, it's new to you. And people seem to have coped in different ways. Some people, not, not often by choice, but it happened, were effectively enrolled into the Mongol army. And so they were required to live, act and even cut their hair as if they were a, Mon a Mongol soldier. And of course, you might think, well, why on earth would they want to fight for the Mongols? The Mongols have an answer to that, which is that their armies were organized according to the decimal system. So squads of 10 controlled by a commander of 100 who had 10 squads under his control, 10 groups of 100 controlled by a commander of 1000 and then a commander of 10,000. You get the idea. But the point is that if a member of a squad should desert or refuse to fight, and that soldier would desert knowing that every single other member of that squad would be killed for what they had done. And if an entire squad deserts, then they would do so knowing that that entire company of 100 soldiers would be killed. So you don't really get a choice. You're going to fight whether you want to or not. Wow, that... Those who weren't enrolled into the Mongol army, then you've got, again, you've got a fair amount of reconciling to do with what is this new reality you're living in? And for many people, the key questions were theological, actually. How, how and why has God allowed this to happen? And that holds true for communities of many different faiths. And the ones I focus on most closely are Christian and Muslim communities. And what's interesting is it seems as if there are two key questions that both Muslim and Christian communities are equally asking at this time. The first one is, is this the apocalypse? Because in both tradition, you have this idea that one day in the end times, the gates of the north will swing wide and out will come the armies of Gog and Magog, who will then sweep into the world. And this is then tied to the advent of the Antichrist and the events of the end times. And so people are asking, is this what we're seeing? Is the arrival of the Mongols from the north? actually not the mongols per se this is actually end times prophecy being realized and given that their entire world is being turned upside down you can see why they'd ask that 
And in fact, most people seem to have landed on the view that Mongols aren't Gog and Magog, but might have come from somewhere nearby, which is a, and actually you get that same kind of explanation in, in, in multiple traditions. Another explanation you get, again, a theological one, is that the reason the Mongols have been allowed to prosper is because they represent God's vengeance. That this is because the community themselves, they have sinned and the Mongols are their punishment, which sounds an incredibly hard interpretation. But viewed from their perspective, it may have the silver lining that it does hold up the hope that if they reform their behavior one day, perhaps things will be better. Yeah, absolutely. They had a, a similar outlook for the 1348 Black Death as well, didn't they? That this was a, a punishment from God, I suppose, with the, the amount of uh, death and violence that the Mongols were bringing. You could see how easy they could equate that as a punishment from God. Yeah, no, it's, it's a go to explanation for major, major disasters, whether military or based on disease or other things. Many societies will be asking those questions when they face a disaster in this era. Just a, a quick question about troops. I mean, that is absolutely brutal. If you desert, your nine comrades are going to die. Um, when it came to garrisoning, did, did they keep the troops from that area, from an area in that area, or would they distribute them to other areas to um, sort of stop any chances of rebellion? That's a good question, yes. Now, the Mongol army effectively divides into two, two basic groups. You've got... They don't really have a name, but you could say the main army, as it were, which consists of the elite troops, often made up wholly or largely from Mongol troops. Um, and these are the, the most effective troops. They're the ones who win the battles, by and large. Although you also have troops called Tama troops, and these are basically garrison troops. And they, can, and they do win battles. It's not as if they don't stage invasions in their own right. But their basic job is to hold territory. And yes, often it's local troops, not necessarily from the area in which they were born and raised, but it's from the various troops the Mongols acquire as they go through their conquests that they use for these garrison troops. Although it has to be said that this model of, well, we'll call it recruitment, why not, of recruiting more soldiers, it will mean that with every victory, the Mongol army gets larger and larger and enrolls more and more troops with different sort of combat specialities, making the, making the army that much more effective as it goes on. So it's a machine of conquest that really works. Uh, so they kind of assimilate like the local methods of fighting that seem to work. Yeah. And the famous one there is Ch Chinese siege engineers. The Mongols, like many um, steppe peoples, they're not effect particularly effective at um, creating siege weapons, um, heavy catapults, heavy um, ballistas, things like that. They know this. And so as a result, they see it very much as being in their interests to uh, recruit as many siege engineers as they can from the various um, peoples that they conquer. So they get many of them from China. Um, but later on, they realize that in the western parts of their empire, you've got the counterweight trebuchet, which is a more effective form of catapult, which sort of came into being amongst the wars fought between Salah Hadin and the Crusader States. And so when the Mongols realised they had a more, a more effective catapult out to the west, they spread that technology into other areas of the Mongol Empire so they can make use of it too. So they're very alive to technological innovation and its uses.
moving away from the military side, uh, you can't run an empire unless you're going to administer it afterwards. So um, what sort of administrators were the Mongols and what problems did they encounter when ruling such a, a huge territory? Sure. I mean, yes, in the early years, rebellions aren't too much of a problem. I, um, we can come back to that in a bit. But um, they do certainly want to make sure they maintain their control and they want to make sure naturally, like every conqueror in the history of the world, that they are extracting as much tax as they possibly can from the people under their control. And so the Mongols, again, they're learning. And so they learn to use censuses. So that the census data can then be used to um, inform their tax collection. Another interesting, it's, it's not quite on subject, but it's again, it's quite an interesting point, is that they, um, they again, they're moving technologies around, or they're moving ideas around. So they learn about paper money in China. And so they think, well, actually, paper money is a good idea because if you are going to be replacing gold and silver with paper, then they get to hold on to the gold and silver because, of course, paper is the promissory note that reflects that um, that gold. So they get to control the precious metal. They hand out the notes and then paper money can circulate. And it's very much in their interests to, to do that because it gives them more currency control. And so they try and introduce this in the Near East applying a Chinese invention in a very different context. But it's interesting, it, it, it works horrendously because no one's prepared to, to accept these um, paper notes. So you've got entire crafts and shops just shutting up and refusing to trade if it means trading in paper money. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting to see that they're, whilst they're trying to adapt and employ technologies and ideas they've learned from across the empire, it doesn't work in all cases. And this is certainly a case where it doesn't. Yeah, I, I could imagine uh, someone handing you a bit of paper saying, here's the money I owe you. Like, well, where, where, where's the gold, man? What am I going to do with this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, even today, I mean, the fact that we attach so much value to what is effectively a bit of, I'm not even sure now, is it plastic, is it paper? But either way, it's not intrinsically valuable at all. And yet we attach that value to it. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm slightly off topic. I remember trying to explain to my children, it's like, this represents 10, 10 pounds worth of gold held at the Bank of England. And my son went, Where's your gold? So, <laughs> the Bank of England, yeah. sadly. <laughs> I keep it out the back. <laughs> we mentioned it just briefly, but bearing in mind how brutal the Mongols are to their soldiers, did anyone rebel against them? Was it was it worth it? Well, that, that I mean, that was it worth it. Bit's the most important one because I think that we're rather misled about rebellions by Hollywood, particularly. Because the standard Hollywood story goes that an invader comes in, invader starts to reorder and re rewire society according to that conqueror's wishes, and then when the suffering reaches its greatest, you know, its greatest extent, someone says, "That's it. It's time to rebel. We've had enough of this." Hmm. In practice, that's not, in my experience, what I've seen. That's not how rebellions work at all. Uh, when the oppressors oppression is at its greatest that's when people aren't rebelling because there's no point there's yeah. no there's no incentive for what is essentially suicidal resistance uh, or at least a few people might try it but you're not going to get public support for that with rebellion normally happens when it's plausible to, to rebel when there's actually a chance that your rebellion might actually overturn authority entirely and so in the early years, there's virtually no rebellions for the Mongols. 
rebellions begin to crop up from the 1260s onwards, but that's once the Mongols are starting to get defeated on the battlefield and they're fighting amongst themselves. So that's, that's a totally different environment. Then, yes, there is a chance this rebellion might just work, and you do have later rebellions. Often it's rebellions not led by local people, but actually led by other Mongol factions. Perhaps they didn't get their, their particular... Um, their particular ruler into power and they wanted to try and do so. And so there is a fair amount of rebellion within the Mongol elites themselves, but particularly in Anatolia, that's modern day Turkey, there's rebellion after rebellion by the local Turkic um, communities called Turkmen. And they rebelled for decades against the Mongols. And the Mongols suppressed those rebellions very brutally, but rarely with much effect because they just keep coming back. The basic Mongol response is always the heavy armoured fist. Often, yeah. N normally, they are, I mean, when Mosul rebelled in the early 1260s, the Mongols just essentially flattened the entire city and then publicly displayed the remains of the ruler's family just to make the point, you aren't going to be rebelling against the Mongols in the future. To quote Stewie Griffin, nothing says obey me like a bloody head on a stick. Uh, that would be a crude way of putting it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't always work, but... Uh... <laughs> Did the Mongols seek to impose their own cultural values on the people they, they ruled? In a sense, yes. In a sense, no. Because there's no doubt the Mongols fundamentally changed the world of the people who they conquered. And so where someone may, for example, have been, I don't know, a farmer in a village outside a town or a town city in the Near East, let's say Istvahan in, in Persia, and they may spend their lives... Um, working their fields, and then maybe taking their surplus to the market, maybe it's going as far as Isfahan from time to time, that world has changed. Because now the entire area is not being ruled out of the big cities necessarily, but out of the big wagon cities that the Mongols bring in. Because the Mongols, when they move into an area, then it's not just their armies, they bring their entire civilization. And so when you, should, when you imagine a Mongol um, community or a Mongol army moving into an area, it's not just riders and soldiers, it's tens of thousands of wagons. And these wagons um, then carry tents, which can be set up to create these enormous tent cities. And sometimes these cities take days to cross if you were to go on foot. And so suddenly this uh, wagon city is there, and this is the area that everyone else now has to treat as their sort of center point. This is where they go. To, to receive their orders. Um, I'm not sure if they held markets there, but this is now the orientation point for that entire society. And these wagon cities, it's not just sort of, you may have seen yurts or things like that, sort of felt tents. By this stage, the Mongol Empire is enormously wealthy. And so these tents are huge. Some are capable of holding 2,000 people. Wow. And they're often made from luxury silks and textiles. So this is... This is, yes, it's a nomadic society. Yes, they still have enormous flocks and herds around their big wagon cities, but these tents are made from the most incredible materials, and we're told even the nails are made from gold. So society starts to reorientate itself, itself around these wagon cities, and that is where people are looking towards when they live their lives. It's a complete reorientation. And the Mongols, by and large, let people live their lives as they see fit, provided they don't cross certain cultural taboos that the Mongols hold as sacred. So they can live their lives as they want, but even so, the, the networks that structure people's lives, those are completely gone, or substantially. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So the, these wagon cities are ultimately uh, the big show of power that, getting some of 20th century, 19th century, you've got the British show of power, we've got a fort with a flag hanging over it, a navy, we see a Royal Navy ship turn up, this is our show of power. So for the Mongols, the wagon city is such, this is who we are. We are now in charge. Look how rich we are. This is our power base. It's that. But it's also simply how the Mongols live. This, this is life. This is, this is their way of life. It is also a way of life that involves conquest. But, um, but yes, as absolutely. And you, you've got emissaries reaching these wagon encampments, just sort of staring with astonishment at just, just the spectacle of it, the entire landscape. That's moving uh, with these with tens of thousands of wagons, and these wagons are said to have axles the thickness of ships' masts. So they're not just wagons in the you know we might think of a farming wagon. They're much much bigger, and uh, it, it must have been a truly astonishing sight. Oh, absolutely, if you're moving um, your whole civilization across well across the world uh, on foot, they're, they're going to be quite huge. Obviously, they're taking over such a large space. They'll be trading across large areas as well, bringing things in from across Asia. So how did uh, the Mongol invasions affect international trade? They had a profound effect. Um, the Mongols, I mean, obviously the Mongols' initial invasions caused enormous devastation, and so that will have affected the local economy. Many people will have been killed. That will affect the agricultural prospects and local artisans. So that conquest phase will have been a tremendous catastrophe for many people. But in the long term, the Mongols are interested in trade. Hmm. And because their empire is so vast, that means that for windows of time, it is possible for a merchant, say, from, I don't know what the day would be, um, you know, somewhere near the borders of Hungary to travel freely all the way across to, um, the, to, the, to the Chinese coast. And that's fine because the Mongol Empire is, is vast and encompasses that huge area. Now, that people talk occasionally about the Pax Mongolica, the peace of the Mongols. Uh, you know, the idea that the Mongol Empire created a vast free trade network. Uh, I don't go quite that far. There's still plenty of bandits around. There's broken up army factions from conquered people. The Mongols fight amongst themselves. So it's not as if the roads are somehow safe across that vast area. But there are windows of opportunity when people can travel from one area to another. And so, I mean, spooling in time forward a little bit, I've always found it interesting reading Giovanni Boccaccio's account of the Black Death. And this, this account includes lots and lots of different stories about different things. But it is interesting that in that account, there are all sorts of occasional references, things like parrot feathers is one that I remember. Um, goods that previously Western Christendom would not have been able to get, but now it can. 
And there's also a major debate about the effect of the Mongol Empire in spreading gunpowder technology. Again, not necessarily through its armies always, but perhaps through merchants, because technologies that used to be uh, primarily or solely um, confined to China, they are now being spread. And the same thing goes with maritime technology. So the magnetic compass takes off in this era. Again, it's a Chinese invention. And so there are merchants, travelers, explorers, people like Marco Popolo or Ibn Battuta, who are some of, the, some of the more famous of these travelers, not always from within Mongol territory. Sometimes they've come in from the outside. Mongols like traders. They like doing business with people from further afield. So there is a substantial effect on trade. Absolutely. Even then, money makes the world go around. And as long as you can get your uh, tax on the trade, that's that's a good way to make money. And the Mongols have money to spend because they've got essentially the, the looted goods of tens of civilizations and they're willing to spend it. And they've uh, they've got things like spices, which uh, Christendom and Europe are quite, quite in, in need of. They control part of that trade, certainly. I mean, a lot of the spices come from Southeast Asia, which the Mongols don't get to. But nonetheless, many of the routes, uh, particularly the overland routes, less so the sea routes or the spice routes um, across the Indian Ocean, the Mongols have control over. Yes, absolutely. We're going to talk more about maritime stuff another time. Um, <laughs> but so we'll move on to integration a bit more. How did the Mongol Empire deal with the interfaith relations? Because obviously you've got Islam, you've got Christians and you've got sort of the Mongol religions as well as any other local religions. How, how would they deal with that melting pot? Sure. So, I mean, yeah, as you say, there's a lot of religions within the Mongol Empire, um, across the entire spread of their empire. In the Near East, the area I'm most concerned with, uh, the, the most prominent religions are Islam, Christianity and Judaism. But it's notable that during the period of Mongol rule, communities of Buddhists come into the Near East and begin to construct um, religious buildings and their community grows. And that is enabled because the Mongols do practice a form of religious tolerance. And the deal seems to go something like this. It's not tolerance for tolerance's sake. It's that the Mongols seem to have perceived all the religions under their rule as being true enough in their own right. So it's not as if one religion's wrong and another religion's right, but they consider them all to be subordinate to them and to their broader spiritual mission. And the Mongols do believe they have a mandate from heaven to rule the entire planet. Now, as long as those religions can sign up to that broader goal and show an acknowledgement that the Mongols do have a mandate for global rule, the Mongols are fine with that. And they accept multiple faiths within their borders, provided the leaders of those faiths can buy into the Mongol mission and pray for its prosperity. And so in some ways, religious leaders, whatever the religion almost, they're viewed as assets using their spiritual power, as it might be, for the broader good of the Mongol Empire. So it's a form of tolerance, but it's tolerance linked to the Mongols' broader mission. So provided those religious leaders can, can sign up to that, that's fine. And so there's an interesting story of an Armenian hermit who goes to the Mongol courts and says to, says to the Mongol Khan, um, essentially that if he, if he prays, if he becomes a Christian, then God will then bless his mission to rule the world. And you can see what the Armenian hermit's trying to do. He's trying to somehow link in Christianity to the Mongols' own sense of spiritual purpose, mm-hmm. because that is the way the Mongols sit. That is the, that is the overarching um, st- structure for 
human life effectively. And there's a, a, a nice story told by a uh, Franciscan missionary to the Mongols called William of Rubruck. And he describes how the Mongol great Khan compared all the religions in the world to the fingers on a hand. And the way I've always interpreted that story is that, yes, the Mongols thought the fingers on the hand were each different, um, different religions across the world. But I've always thought the Mongols thought that they themselves were the palm, the bit that connects all those religions. And so it's tolerance, but it's tolerance of a certain kind. It's still very much attached to the Mongols' broader sense of objective and purpose. I suppose that if they had been more forceful and against territories they conquered religion, it can stir up rebellion a bit more. Possibly. It may not have gone that far. The Mongols are very, very clear that if you sign up to their world mission, if you acknowledge that they have the right to rule the world, you are on the right side of history, you've understood. And actually, you don't just deserve tolerance, you deserve praise for recognising that particularly if you haven't been forced to, to recognise that. If, however, you fail to recognise the Mongols' right to rule the world, if you can't understand that, and worse still, if you show resistance to that, not only are you wrong, not only are you on the wrong side of history, but actually there's no place for you in the world anymore. Yeah, pretty harsh but fair. Um, but the... Um... But some of the Mongols in the Near East did convert to Islam, didn't they? Yes, indeed. And across the Mongol Empire, different um, Mongol communities converted to different religions, but particularly in the Western parts of Eurasia to Islam, absolutely. And that's there's all sorts of questions that historians are interested around that. How sudden was that conversion is one? Was it a long-term process or a short-term process? Was the conversion sudden? So did the Mongols jettison their previous beliefs and adopt Islam again in a, in a relatively short space of time or was it longer and what and and how did that conversion come across come about how was it that they learned about islam how was it that they chose to convert and so there's lots of questions around this um mm -hmm. at the moment the the sort of line of best fit as far as the scholarship seems to be is that the conversion was slow so it stretched over many decades in some conversions of the medieval era, it's the ruler who converts first and then the ruler's subjects convert in the ruler's slipstream. It seems to be a mixture here. Yes, the conversion of a Mongol leader to Islam would have been a significant moment in the Islamification of that Mongol community. But it seems as if there was also a groundswell of converts as well. And the conversion seems to be slower. So you have a, a slow adoption of things like Islamic law, Islamic practices, Islamic beliefs, and often for many decades they're held alongside existing Mongol beliefs, sort of beliefs in the spiritual character of Chinggis Khan or the Mongols' mandate to rule the world, things like that. They're held side by side. And you have the Mamluk Empire, which is a main centre of resistance to the Mongols. They're very unconvinced by the Mongols' conversion. And you have people pointing out, look, the Mongols simply aren't practising um, Islam in the way that we would understand it. They're still very much practicing their local, you know, their, their pre-existing beliefs as well. But over time, that conversion sort of gathers pace as you move into the 14th century. And as to the as to the, the, the people who um, facilitated or brought about the con conversion of the Mongols, there's a lot of stories about Sufis and Sufi Islam influencing uh, Mongol leaders. 
that's one possibility. Another explanation that I find quite persuasive is that about 200 years before the Mongols arrived, you've got the invasions of the Seljuk Turks. And the Seljuk Turks invaded the Near East, much as the Mongols were to in the 13th century. And they were originally rather like the Mongols. They had steppe beliefs. They had the traditional sort of shamanistic beliefs of their forefathers. But they slowly converted to Islam over time until and that conversion seems to have been very much advanced um, by the end of the 13th century. And so when the Mongols invaded the Near East, the most most sort of closely aligned culturally speaking people to them would have been the Seljuk Turks and their descendants and the other Turkic groups in the Near East with whom the Mongols shared a very close affinity. And so the, those Turk, Turkish communities would have provided a very natural template for the Mongols to follow in terms of their own conversion to Islam. But it, it has to be said, you do hear about Mongols converting to other religions as well. Um, some Mongols show an interest in Buddhism, some show an interest in Christianity, but the big picture is conversion to Islam, at least in the long term. Was there, um, was there quite a large number that converted? It's difficult to say, but it, by the sort of the, the early to mid 14th century, it, it had become the sort of the, not the state religion, but it had become sort of the, antici the anticipated religion, the standard religion of Mongol communities in that area. The Mongol Empire last several hundred years how does the nature of its rule change over, over the length of time sure yeah the mongol empire um, goes on for centuries in various forms although increasingly the, the various different areas of the mongol empire so i mean the three really big empires to emerge from the overall mongol empire um, from the 1260s and 70s are the ilkhanate in persia and the near east in what today would be sort of russia and much of eastern europe um, you have the emergence of what's called the um, Carnage of the Golden Horde, or just the Horde. And then you've got the um, the Great Khans in China. But there are smaller ones as well. Uh, the Blue Horde and the White Horde. Yeah. But um, those are the big ones. And, and in many cases, they, they recently adopt many cases. the culture and religion of the people they have come to rule. And so they become very culturally distinctive from each other as they acculturate to local beliefs and practices. So Mongol rule does change over time. But there are other changes too. The Mongols have to accommodate, for example, the fact they're no longer winning. From about the 1260s to 80s onwards, they become fairly strong powers, surrounded by other fairly strong powers. They win, they lose, they conduct diplomacy. It's no longer enough for them just to say, submit to us or we'll kill you. They have to conduct diplomacy, they have to win allies, they have to um, go through all the process of having ambassadors. They become one power among many and they're no longer expanding, which again changes their culture, given that their culture was initially rooted on the belief of, of global conquest. And they have to come to terms with that that's not going to happen. So there are there are many shifts and as they intermarry with local families, again, they take on more the form of the area they've originally conquered. Ultimately, what causes the Mongol Empire to sort of fracture and dissipate? Sure. Um, so initially, the Mongol Empire and its expansion is begun by Temujin, who takes the title Chinggis Khan. And many of the wars of expansion that he conducts, he conducts some himself, but many of them are conducted by his sons. And those sons will then go on to um, have more sons 
and grandsons. And the, the Mongol Empire is vast. It's far too big to rule. Now, the Mongols have things to help communications across this vast area, perhaps most famously the fast horse system, which means you can get a ma- uh, which basically means you've got a series of way stations with fast horses based at them. And so a messenger will just change horses repeatedly or new messengers will pick up the message so it can cover um, great distances at speed. But the empire is still huge. And so different areas of the empire are not given, but they're entrusted to the sons of Chinggis Khan and then their heirs to rule as called, they're called Ulu, which is a sort of area of jurisdiction. They're all part of the broader empire, but each of these sorts of princely families has got their own area of jurisdiction. But of course, once you've told someone that they've got jurisdiction over an area, then the line dividing jurisdiction from outright ownership starts to get pretty grey pretty quickly. And so as the years go past, increasingly those Ulu are treated more like areas of dominion and rule. And so these princely families have start conducting diplomacy amongst themselves. And the dynamo that once held them together begins to fray as they begin to antagonize one another. Civil war breaks out and then before you know it, you've got the empire breaking up into its constituent parts or into, into, into these various Ulus, which become empires in their own right. That happened a couple of times, didn't it? And then they'd reunite under a, under a new ruler and then fracture again a few centuries later. It's a slow process. I mean, and you do have the rise of people like the Emir Timur, um, who is, at least in the UK, or at least in the English tradition, remembered as Marlowe's Tamberlin, um, who invaded in, in much of the Near East in the 14th century. He didn't conquer as much as uh, Genghis Khan, but he created another empire. So yes, you have further Mongol invasions, as it were, going on into the future. Like I said, said at the beginning, it's not something that I've known that much about, but I've been over the last couple we've done has been really, really interesting. And I really need to read more. But uh, Nick, thank you ever so much for coming on and talking to us again. For our listeners, if they, there's more, they want to know more about this subject or more about what your work, where else can they find you? Sure. Um, well, I've written a book on this subject and it's called The Mongol Storm. And you can buy it on Amazon or hopefully from most bookshops. So if you're interested, have a look at that. Uh, if you'd like to know more about me, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at NicholasMorto11. Or you can look at my YouTube channel where I've offered a few um, short videos on different aspects of the history of the Mongols and the Crusades and things like that. And my handle for YouTube is at Medieval Near East. Or they're just typing in Nicholas Morton Mongols or Crusades or something like that should normally find me. And if you haven't got Mongol Storm, I can thoroughly recommend it. I've really enjoyed it. Nick, again, thank you ever so much for coming on. This has been really, really good. Pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll have to do it again sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. 
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.